this is a pilot episode, which means that we can do whatever we want, whatever direction we want to take it. This project doesn't have a name yet, but we probably should begin by introducing ourselves. Okay, that sounds good. We could also start by talking about how we first kind of started to communicate, because that might fill in some of the blanks as well. Yeah, okay. And I guess I would take credit for that. I think that was my doing. I remember... Coming across, I don't know if it was on the philosophy updates listserv or or how, but I remember coming across your Biota Live discussion on artificial life. And I think I just emailed you. I must have found your email address online and emailed you and said, I think this is great. I love that you're putting together this artificial life group and this is something I've been interested in independently as an academic, as a philosopher, you know, nobody in sort of my group or my department working on anything like that. And then I guess you and I just kept in touch and eventually you asked me to talk about artificial life on one of those podcasts. And that's when I talked to Dick Gordon which kind of spun off in another direction, and I did a bunch of projects with them. But um, for the artificial life stuff, I put together, I don't know if you remember so many years ago now, that sort of online repository of artificial life guest speakers, and I don't know if that actually went anywhere. But, yeah, it was just cool to come across somebody outside of, you know, academia so to speak who was working on artificial life and doing all this cool work so i guess that was that had to be i don't know 2008 or 2009 yeah it was about that time frame i would have thought so i yeah i always think of this as in terms of where i was living at the time yeah me too so (laughs) we bought a house in november 2009 i can't recall i think almost all the recordings i did with you were from the house. I don't think we did any from the apartment, which would have put it towards the end of 2009. Yeah. The yeah, Biota, that sounds right, 2009. Yeah, the Biota Project is an interesting one. In fact, I'm going to put this audio in the Biota feed. So for folks who are, have obviously listened to the back catalogue, it will exist in that audio form, at least till we decide what we want to do with this general discussion. Mm-hmm. Biota, for me, was basically a trajectory of about, probably six to maybe ten years of communicating with Bruce Damer initially, then starting to record the Biota podcasts, and then getting to the point where all the regular participants were doing other things. Um, mm-hmm. So Jeffrey Ventrella, Gerald de Jung, um, Steve Grand, they all kind of moved on to work on their own startup projects and these kind of things. Larry Yeager is now working at Google, so he can't contribute the time that he put into Polyworld, although I was able to mm. get him involved with a local talk series that I organised for last year and early this year called uh, Conscious in the Cloud. Mm. But Biota as an entity, I think, probably could continue. My only concern with it is associated with Bruce Damer's kind of connection and long-term involvement because he's now very actively talking against the notion of artificial life on a few levels. And it's huh. quite strange having someone who's, organi- who's organized Biota up until now 
now being one of its strongest kind of critics in a somewhat uh, strange fashion. So anyway, Bruce and I are going to get together for lunch uh, in a few weeks' time, and no doubt this will be discussed. It's been discussed actually quite actively through um, what's appeared in, in the Biota recordings, and also uh, he was part of Conscious in the Cloud and, and gave a talk at Conscious in the Cloud. But from my own perspective, I've continued to work on Noble Ape, which is the project that I started working on mm-hmm. in 1996. And it's gone in a variety of different directions. I also went to the Artificial Life Conference in 2012 and spent some time with Artificial Life Academics. And that mm-hmm. was a strange interaction. <laughs> because I, the benefit of actually doing Biota recordings was that I never actually needed to be in the same space with any of the participants. I, yeah. knew Bruce, I knew Bruce Damer physically, and I've met Jeffrey Ventrella, and I've met Larry Yeager now. But actually being in academic institutions, talking to academics, getting a sense of what their day-to-day life was, was wow. very strange for me, because I would have thought that they would have embraced certain aspects, particularly the biological complexity or just the general complexity that I tried uh-huh. to put into Noble Ape, and they just weren't, they weren't ready for it. So it was one of these strange things where I realized that I'd been, it's almost like a cargo cult, that I cultivated this kind of cargo cult of what artificial life was. And then when I emerged out of the jungle to talk to the people that had, you know, created the artificial life conference series and all these kind of things, I realized that we were actually different entities. So I went through some kind of struggle and realized that at the end of the day, Noble Lake was about simulation. It was about a variety of different forms of simulation. Uh, you and I had the opportunity of, you know, working on book chapters together. So you have some, mm-hmm. some, you know, sense of the background of Noble Ape. And I've continued that. I've atomized a lot of the ideas. I've changed some of the simulation aspects. Bob Mottram, the roboticist who worked on Noble Ape for about three years, is now working with an open source company in the UK. So all his time is taken with that. So I've had an opportunity yeah. of teasing these things apart and looking at you know, how you distribute the simulation environment with potentially a much larger simulation space with the apes being simulated on individual computers and devices and all this kind of ecosystem stuff, uh, like mm. technological ecosystem. But, um, yeah, it's been an interesting period. Yeah. In parallel to this, just as I was probably in the last two years of Biota Live, I started recording another podcast called Model Rail Radio, and that right. took off. I mean, that was the BioLive format, exactly, with people calling in and talking about what they were doing and all this kind of stuff, except associated with model railroading. And that oh, just completely exploded. I mean, that's a thing that has a life of its own. We're recording the 100th show mm-hmm. in January wow. next year, and people are flying in and coming down from all over. There'll be actually, no like, you know, what looks like 20 plus, probably close to 40 people by the end of it that are actually showing up on my in my abode uh, to wow. record it live so that gives that is so cool <laughs> and that's so far afield from artificial life well, actually, so is that an, that's another passion of yours no the interesting thing is i'm not a model railroader and they kind of <laughs> sense that but they then appreciate that i'm a good at creating communities and i've been very useful in creating uh. this community i actually think there's a lot of similarities Artificial life developers are fundamentally creating universes that are like, Uh you know, that they can explore, that are highly detailed, that have eclectic things going on within them. And that's basically model railroaders too. The other thing is when you interact with academics and, and, you know, artificial life folk, 
irrespective of how crazy and harebrained they may be to an external observer, you've got to treat them with a certain degree of respect, and you've got some parameters that you can move. And the same is true with model railroaders. If you create a forum where they feel perfectly comfortable, they can talk about their you know, particular interests, they can discourse. I mean, it was what was going on with Biota Live, but just with a vast... I mean, it's difficult to actually... It would be like Biota Live where I had, like, 40 people call in every show, and, you wow. know, I mean, it just... It, the, the size of, of Model Rail Radio compared to Biota Live was just overwhelming, but obviously I'm still... I still develop this simulation. Um, yeah. And the community that was part of that... It's not really there anymore. So I feel mm-hmm. since... And the younger generation, I've, I've done interviews and corresponded with, you know, university folk, university graduates who are just coming into this field and what some, mm-hmm. you know... And the best feedback, actually, I got from the Artificial Life Conference was the number of academics that came up to me and said Biota was really an important part of what they did. Like, it oh, was almost cool. like a tutorial group. It made them... There were a group of Polish academics that said that they felt very... Before Biota Live, they just felt isolated. And through Biota Live, they uh, could reach out to a broader community, which I kind of gave in audio form. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can definitely relate to that. I mean, it. I had to go outside of philosophy. You know, and I know... Um, I've never met him in person, but Mark Bedell. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's at, no, I've, met, at I've met Mark Bedell. <laughs> Reed College, is that yes. right? Yes, I've he's met Mark in, in Oregon. And I've never met him in person, but, yeah. you know, he, uh, Elliot Sober, the philosopher of biology, wrote, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of things about artificial life. Even Dan Dennett had mentioned it. Totally. So it was out there, you know, some of the big names, but really it was not a big focus at my university. Nobody in my department knew what the hell it was. Nobody, you know, the only advice I got was you're not going to get a job in artificial life. You know, your degree is in philosophy, so you better either, you know, get over this little fascination or broaden your skill set because it's not, it's just not a traditional philosophical subdiscipline. So it's very isolating when you're out there and everybody's working on, you know, the traditional philosophical problems. And I kind of stumbled across. Margaret Bowden's book, mm-hmm. Philosophy of Artificial Life, and that just blew my mind. I was yeah. like, wow, this brings together computer science and modeling and and physics and, you know, philosophy and biology and holy cow, it was such a huge mind-blowing discovery, but there there was nothing to really tie it together until I started talking to you guys. Mm-hmm. I have had communications with Bruce Damer. In fact, some of his um, pictures of his plants, mm-hmm. that he, the artificial plants he grew with L-Systems, wound up in a paper I published last year. So I've, I've had communication with some people in that community, and it's really gratifying. It's like, okay, there is actually a community. It's just really dispersed. Mm-hmm. You know, people in all different fields all over the world. So, yeah, I would definitely echo that sentiment that, Biota kind of gave that, gave it sort of a home base almost. But I didn't realize you weren't doing it anymore. I well, thought that was still going. I had, I had a strange experience on the first day of the Artificial Life Conference because basically I gave I gave seminars and actually tutorials mainly for the mm-hmm. first day. I think it was either the oh, evening cool. of the first day or the night before. 
and I was walking through the conference and I knew everyone. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. But none of them knew who I was or they just didn't interact. There was a kind of nervous energy. I just mm. went through and I saw Mark Badeau and I saw all these people. I was hoping to meet Larry Yoga. And then on the next day, I just went to... I must have been after my tutorials. It must have been the day following. And I was pulled into this little room by somebody. You know, and there, there they all were. I mean, you know, Chris Adami was there. There were a wide variety of folk that I had uh, had some connection with. And they were all interested in, in hearing my ideas. The problem I felt uh. was, and they made me a member of the... I'm still technically a member of the board. Their problems were not my problems, and my problems were not their problems. And the mm-hmm. learning that had occurred through the biota experience couldn't translate to the stuff that they were doing. So I felt that there was just uh. a, a, a distinction that wouldn't enable a degree of interaction. The problems I was having at the time, I mean, I... Yeah. I work at Netflix. I was trying to bring artificial life concepts into Netflix at the time. I yeah. worked very hard on that project, but none of the none of the broader community could really assist with that. And at the same mm-hmm. time, I was also internally within Netflix trying to, you know, explain and resolve some of these concerns. I mean, I I existed as an oddity both within Netflix and also the other yeah. life conference in this regard. Yeah. But I You're also, like an exotic like Yeah, it's <laughs> who who is yeah. this person? But do you think it's because the when you say you had different problems, do you mean your problems were more practical as well, I, a computer person and theirs were more what philosophical no, as their, academics? Their problem was or? just running a conference. I mean, their problem was basically getting continued funding and interest in the conference. Oh, and I see. just organizational things. I mean, very basic organizational things. And Tim Taylor did help them through some of this. But I just realized I needed, uh, if, if, mm-hmm. if I was to have a group of peers, I needed yeah. them to be in a place where they would be able to on a variety of levels offer support and advice. So I tried to create this group yeah. locally to do that. And that was similarly here I mean, in the Bay, there are names like Kurzweil and, you know, the Singularity yeah. folk and all these other kinds of people. And I'm, I'm just past that as well. So uh, you have these people coming with this kind of narrative to the Conscious in the Cloud talks, and then you have people who are past it. But the yeah. actual infrastructure of creating a, a talk series that goes on in the evenings and all this kind of stuff. And we ended yeah. up having, because we released it in podcast for more people listening to the podcast than actually attending the talks. Although we had oh, a wow. number of interesting people there. So, yeah, I think mm. I, it's not that I, I mean, I would love to continue to do the Biota series, but I need people. Like, yeah. It, just, it could just be me. Just giving a monologue. Just every talking recording. about artificial life, but, yeah. I think the other thing is that I also became quite concerned that the work that I'd done, in part through interactions with uh, a couple of folk at this conference, but also just in reflection on once you go to a conference and you see papers being presented on artificial life as sanctioned by the International Society and the conference. And in particular, when you see it as being part of a narrative, which I would consider at least 20 years old and really Mm. hasn't moved on through that because they've lost elements of complexity. The notion of open source within this community is, I found, quite curious. They just didn't seem to speak my language on a number of levels. Um, Uh. So I started to wonder whether what I was doing with Noble Ape, I mean, although I'd used the term artificial life roughly for a decade, mainly because... Um, initially it was an obstacle to even call Noble Ape artificial life. There was a kind of existing 
I don't know what one would call it, but an existing group that didn't want Noble Ape as part of Artificial Life. Having had this experience at the conference, I started to realise that, well, Noble Ape is just a bunch of simulations. And it's a Mm. series of layered simulations, and this thing called Artificial Life is something different. And I just need to accept that. And so then the context of Biota becomes interesting. So, Mm. you know, what is Biota in this context, particularly with Bruce Damer in parallel to this finishing his PhD, but also then being very um, vocal and almost to a certain degree hostile associated with many of the ideas that I was trying to cultivate through the biotic community. Now, Bruce and I both in recorded and unrecorded sessions have talked about this. I think he was most recently, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the comedian Joe Rogan, but Joe Rogan interviewed him last week and actually took him to task in a kind of 20-minute section associated with how various issues associated with the origin of life couldn't move to a concept of artificial life in terms of you know, simulated agents or these kind of things, which was my criticism of Bruce's, you know, new perspective. Ah. Um, but anyway, so it's interesting times for Biota. I think that's yeah. still, there's still potential out there. There are lots, I mean, I get periodic emails from new listeners that have listened to it from end to end and have gotten a lot out of it. And it exists as a resource for people That's still. Right. right, exactly. I mean, it's always going to live online, yeah. so it's still a resource. But you could bring it back, but it sounds like you've really created a community with the model rail. Well, in parallel rail, to what this is it? Well, model? model rail radio. In, okay, model in, rail radio. In parallel to this as well, I've also, in, in again, a 2000, probably a 2010 time frame, I started yeah. talking with a, a linguist called Heron Stone, and then... This thing oh, yeah. became the Stone Ape podcast, which as, has a community as well, completely removed from artificial life and model railroaders. Although the model and rail everything. community, <laughs> the model rail community has you know contributed a number of listeners into into Stone Ape, and oh, that's, that's cool. there's yeah, some crossover to a certain extent. I mean, I, I guess disenchanted intellectuals at the crossover, maybe <laughs> who knows? Uh, but yeah, that has been an interesting process as well, and I think Heron. In terms of what he brings to the recording, has a, a breadth of knowledge through kind of the 70s, 80s, and certain aspects of the 90s in a very, I don't know, LA, just an LA culture, which I'm, I've am i always been interested in, but never had someone such as Heron to be, you know, a, a sparring partner, so to speak. So yeah. that has generated its own group. But then again, that's distinctly different from uh, the Biota participants and Model Rail Radio. The thing that interests me about my conversations with Heron is mm-hmm. a third, roughly a third of the listeners are women, which okay. I've never had in any forum previously. I mean, the Biota participants are almost exclusively male, and the listening audience is almost exclusively mm-hmm. male. Model Rail Radio has a number of transgender participants, and oh, they, um, I think, probably outweigh the female participants, uh, and then just a bunch of men. It's actually a well-known. It's a well-known thing. I've talked to people about this, and there's a known community within the transgender community that's interested in model rail. Like it's just a known what? thing, which you'd that never is... know about unless you entered. The... No, yeah. I would never know about that. Yeah. That is a really interesting connection. But I think with your this stone ape, I think it's obvious why. It's because you have such a your conversations kind of go all over the place and and you <laughs> you hit on all different topics and it's very entertaining to listen to so why wouldn't that be i would expect it to be even 
50-50, men and women, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's based on contact. So it could be yeah. it could be that there are more women that, that don't get in contact. Yeah. Oh, right, right. But as, as we're doing this as a pilot, mm-hmm. you've changed your careers and your location a wide variety <laughs> of things since we last talked. I mean, I kind of get that sense from talking to you. Yeah, you, yes, you only know the half of it. Wait until you find out what job I just got. Okay. <laughs> so, yes, I left... Uh, philosophy, full-time philosophy professor job last year, and last week I just got hired at a construction company. Oh. So I have really, really, um, I'm joking with my friend who's local here that my memoir should be something like from the ivory tower to the concrete floor or, you know, something along those lines. Yeah, it's, um, it is a writing job. I'm writing proposals for... Uh, developing writing proposals for a local general contracting firm. So it's a small construction firm. It's all project managers, and they need somebody to kind of standardize their proposals, do do high-quality professional proposals to pitch jobs. Uh, They get jobs that are, you know, multi-million-dollar deals, and I'm in Boulder County, Colorado, and Boulder County is just booming. I mean, everywhere you look, there's a new condo complex, a new mall, a new this, a new that. So it's just booming. So it is the right business to get into. It's just something I never could have predicted. <laughs> yes. You know, months ago, let alone when I was getting my PhD in philosophy. But it's it's definitely exciting. I mean, I'm in the right place at the right time, and... I, I have always had an interest in design and architecture and building. It's just always been a side interest, and now it's kind of becoming um, front and center. So I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's quite a change for sure. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. My, my wife's parents ran a steel business in L.A. Oh, for wow. their entire careers. My father-in-law is currently going blind. So they basically had to close it down a couple of years ago. But I was down there about a month ago, and my role when I go down there is to keep my father-in-law busy. Oh, wow. So he and I sit together, and he tells me absolutely every detail. And I've been married, I guess, for 14 years now, 13, 14 years. So I knew them when the business was really booming as well. So, yeah, I, I have a remarkable amount of knowledge in that particular Oh, good, industry. good. Then I might be coming to you for consults because, I mean, I'm still kind of shocked that I got the job. I mean, I have writing skills, but yes. all these people, the project managers at least, they all have college degrees in uh, design, yes. construction management, you know, some architecture, something along those lines. And I have no background in this field, so I'm I'm hoping that... It is, you know, primarily a writing job, so I have those skills. But um, yeah, there's just a lot to learn. But you know, it's exciting. It's completely different from philosophy, and I did get to the point where I needed a break from academic philosophy. I I think I always needed that break, and now I'm really taking it. And so we'll see. Yes, it's interesting yeah. times in Colorado currently. I mean, I watch it remotely. Perhaps. But it does interest me. I mean, aside from the weather, which yeah. I think I have family in Colorado. I have second cousins in Colorado. Oh, yeah? Um, What's, what city? What uh, actually, they're in two. Um, they were based in... Uh, they're now... I don't. I actually don't know. They were based in Grand okay. Junction. They were both born in Grand Junction, and then they moved okay. to two separate cities. 
Okay. So, um, unfortunately, yeah, it's not in the forefront of my mind, aside from the fact that they're in Colorado. Uh, yeah. But I would imagine through some of their photos that uh, one was probably either in Boulder or a suburb of Denver. I mean, they're in, one of them's in yeah. ma- a major city and the other one is in the outskirts of somewhere. So I, I okay. will research that for our next recording. Get back okay, to good. But, yeah, no, it's interesting times because yeah. I think, um, yeah, there's just and a lot of stuff going on. not just the legalization of marijuana, but yeah, I was, I mean, of course, when I, you know, quit my job last year, um, even the president of the college where I, where I quit made some sort of joke about 420 and, and marijuana being legalized. Yes. And I thought, wow, that's weird. Because, I mean, the whole country, now Colorado's not the only state, you know, there are several other states where it's legalized, but... The whole country is kind of watching Colorado and wherever else it's been legalized. I guess Connecticut now and California well, to just see, not, you know, they're not actually, what Colorado is unique. The only other state where it's fully legalized is Washington State. That's right. And in Washington right. State, they added a whole lot of additional bureaucracy, mm-hmm. which basically restricts the ability for, I mean, the, what they've done in Canada currently is they've basically made it illegal for small operators to, you know, cultivate and sell cannabis. So yeah. they have, I think now it's all government restricted to yeah. the point where there are only probably half a dozen, you know, big businesses that are actually have done the licensing necessary. But in uh, Colorado, it's still relatively open, I think. I mean, I get the sense that People, and this primarily comes through, you know, watching Vice documentaries and things like that. But <laughs> it seems that, you know, there are still yeah. plenty of kind of mom and pop. But the translation is interesting. I mean, I, I talked to okay. Heron about this recently, but the idea that they are not able to bring in the soccer mom demographic, mm-hmm. the soccer mom, to use the American demographic, was what the Vice documentary was talking about. That what mm-hmm. they want to do is make cannabis like Chardonnay. Basically, oh, have you know nice. these kind of parties where you know women go and and you know animals or what have you rather than <laughs> rather than drink Chardonnay, which is a oh. huge potential demographic. The problem is that they haven't been able to cultivate, for want of a better term, the demographic outside of you know long term, relatively heavy cannabis users. They've not actually encouraged mm-hmm. anyone, and that's although obviously there's an influx of people associated with the legalization. That's yeah. not actually creating the economic stability. The other thing is, I, I can, yeah. from where I'm from in Australia, cannabis was decriminalized when I was about 12. So interesting. So I've seen it on the ground, so to speak. And the thing that always yeah. struck me was the notion of um, illegal pricing. So cannabis yeah. in California, as it is sold medicinally, is still sold at illegal prices. And what do you mean, illegal prices? I mean, I'm saying that if you were to buy cannabis on the street illegally uh-huh. you would pay roughly what you're paying in the medical dispensaries oh okay the notion- i think same same as here it's this it's comparable it's just that the taxes are so high well i mean the nature of the plant and the cultivation of the plant should make it considerably cheaper when it's legalized and the delta in this pricing is a very interesting problem Mm. because particularly for medical patients and these kind of things it's still overpriced for what it actually is Uh. and all these businesses are being grown on these illegal prices now if it was truly the price would probably decrease dramatically which would then 
really assault the illegal market because if people could get it legally cheaper than they could get it illegally, there would be no purpose in the illegal market. But the nature of the way the pricing has gone with medical cannabis in California has in no way impacted the illegal market like it should have done. The interesting thing in Washington State is they're actually they've actually taxed it to the point where they are only looking to reduce the illegal market by a small component as opposed oh to gosh. completely address the illegal market by not overtaxing it and allowing the ideally the prices to drop so yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I have no affiliation with cannabis whatsoever but i find it fascinating as because where i'm where i grew up it mm-hmm. had a very profound impact on my generation a majority of my peers were, and many of them still are, heavy cannabis users. Mm-hmm. These were peers that would were gifted and talented and you know, probably would have gone on through a variety of programs. Many of them did. But a few of them were kind of knocked back by the cannabis decriminalization. And I think the way in which it's framed, particularly if you have areas with virtually no employment and just generally depressed areas and then you legalize cannabis... It's yeah. going to have one effect. What interests me in places like Colorado in particular is you get a slightly different playing field. So you can start to see how, you know, how decriminalization or how legalization fundamentally should actually work in the long term. Except, you know, I haven't really, because people ask me about this when I, right when it was um, made legal, I think I was in, um, Utah for a wedding, and everyone, everyone was like, "Oh, wow, crazy that it's legal!" You know, how, what what is it like? And I was like, "It's just like the same as it's as it's always been." You know, <laughs> the people who I know who smoke pot smoked pot before yes. and smoke pot now, and I think the reason why it's not having an overall statewide economic um, effect, and it is in Colorado, but you're saying it's not having this huge effect in, in California. It's almost a matter of um, of practice like if you're used to buying it from your drug dealer down the street you're not going to necessarily when it's legalized start going to the dispensary you're going to keep buying it from that dude down the street you know what i mean Mm. so i I think it's not necessarily affecting people's habits like the the people who smoke still smoke and the people who don't still don't it really hasn't it doesn't feel like there's a huge a change out here other than you know you see dispensaries so where I, I live in a town that's 15 miles north of boulder and all the dispensaries have been in boulder and denver and you have to travel down there to get it and it was supposed to be not in our town limits i don't know why maybe it was like a pta ruling or something but it wasn't supposed to be in our town and i just heard that one opened in our town so there that's kind of interesting it's like wow now you just you can drive two miles and buy it legally. That's the only thing that's really changed, but you know, you don't see any overall major changes. But I know Colorado is hoping for that to happen. With the the state tax on it is something like, you know, I don't know, it's twenty I don't know, I'm gonna make it up, like ten to twenty percent. It's a lot of money, so it should eventually have an impact, right? Uh, depending on where that money is put. But you know what's kind of disheartening? When I was when we first moved back here this past summer and I was looking for writing jobs, some of the jobs I saw at the state level, state government jobs, in writing were all about writing for anti-marijuana campaigns. Yes. 
So it's so distressing. It's like, oh, it's finally made legal. Okay, everything's going to be simpler. Everybody's going to be cool about it. But some of that very same money that the state is generating is just going back into paying people to write anti-drug campaigns and anti-drug, you know, commercials and all this bullshit. It's like, it just seems so counterproductive. You know what I mean? Yeah. If, when, it's, if it's legal, like, just let it be legal. Leave it alone, yeah. you know? When Denver police came out with the, there's going to be cannabis candy available at Halloween, you just realize that the same yeah. lobby groups that have always been there, always doing their little part to right. just right. want to maintain that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, I know. And, you know, it's nothing to do even with personal choice, but it is something that I do think should be legal. Just because they're so... It, it's just too complicated arresting people for marijuana and having anti-marijuana commercials. I mean, it's all so ridiculous you know it just it seems so pointless to me kind of like you know trying to make alcohol illegal you know yeah good luck with that right yes yeah yeah i'm i'm certainly following state by state i think it's a shame that california isn't fully decriminalized in fact it really is an embarrassment because california was the first state to have medical cannabis but the other thing in california is the medical cannabis lobby is huge and it's not interested in in full legalization they're Mm -hmm. heavily invested in the way in which cannabis is is sold and marketed in california and all the annual fees that you know the various cannabis doctors charge and all this kind of nonsense it's almost like they're addicted to the bureaucracy which makes it illegal still for you know general use and the whole notion of recreational consumption which is incredibly i mean if you think of any music that's come out in the past 50 years. Cannabis yeah. has been a substantial part. Any, any yeah. decent music. You know. So the whole cultural aspect of it is completely lost in the current medical. And the other thing is that the medical strains that are sold here are not... I mean, I, you know, I, I, my background in cannabis comes from Australia in terms of knowing what was grown in Australia, both as a, you know, when it was decriminalised, but also through my travelings in an area in Australia that made a lot of money through cannabis, you know, growth and sales, but particular strains of cannabis, the stuff that is sold here as medical marijuana is very, very curious and based on historically what were illegal strains, not historically what were medical strains or even historically, you know, what were what are called land races, which are like the genetically isolated strains of cannabis. So you end up with this... And which is the reason that they can't sell to sucker mums as well, because it's called, you know, OG Bubba Kush or whatever. It's not called, you know, where it's from <laughs> regionally. So the names don't actually match to what anyone who hasn't been submerged in 420 culture for the past, you know, two decades, which is a very kind of yeah. California, Colorado phenomenon. It doesn't really translate well um, yeah. to sucker mums here. But yeah, we've, that's we've true. spent an inordinate amount of time talking about this. The one topic I did want to raise <laughs> as a pilot... Let's talk more about Chardonnay. <laughs> as a pilot um, discussion was yes. this idea of online identity and the way oh, in which wow. now people have identities that exist online as well as identities that exist in the physical world. Uh-huh, good topic. Particularly associated yes. with security and notions of, you know privacy and these kind of things Mm -hmm. what's your perspective on this 
I haven't thought about it too much in terms of privacy. I have heard um, a few people say kind of exactly my intuition, which is, um, you know, the very same people who are so up in arms about my privacy and, oh, the NSA is so scary and, you know, I deserve a right to my privacy are the same schmucks who post everything about every detail of their lives on Facebook. Yeah. And I'm a non-Facebooker, so I'll put that out there. I've never been on Facebook. I created a fake profile once about seven years ago to look at um, you know, somebody you know, was like, look at my photos on Facebook. And I was like, what the hell is this Facebook thing? So I just made up a fake profile. But I've never myself been on Facebook because it's just not my thing. And it's funny how people think that they're so concerned about their privacy, but put their lives out there. So I think that's just, you know, an irritating irony or um, inconsistency that most people live by. But um, one thing that I've, I've written two pieces about recently, just the past um, two months, I have short articles coming out in a magazine called Consumer Electronics. And um, it is honestly part of the reason I quit my job as a college professor is this obsession of the younger generation, you know, 25 and under, who are absolutely obsessed with who they are online and they completely lose sight of who they are in real life. And it's um, to the point of being... I couldn't stand it anymore. I honestly couldn't stand it. It is uh, just the obsession with who are they in social media and who are they communicating with at that moment and what kind of impression are they making to people who are looking at their various profiles and really kind of lose so much of their real self and I'm sure you might have a difference of opinion on that, but meaning who they are in person, how they act in real time, in real life, um, has really deteriorated. And so, I don't know, that's probably enough for you to respond to because I could go on and on. <laughs> I think there's a generational issue, and I'm certainly mindful mm -hmm. of that because I'm the, in, within my maternal family, I'm the eldest by seven and a half years, and then I have brothers, mm. and then there's another seven years, and then slowly we taper down to, I think the youngest is now 18. How many siblings? Uh, I used to have a photo, actually, of all of them. They're about, I don't know, they're about probably 12, let's say, let's in that order, 12 to 15. In your family? In my, well, in my extended family through my maternal grandparents. Oh, oh, so oh, 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 oh. I thought you didn't here. know how many brothers and No, 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 that. it's not okay, that. Okay, okay. I was like, wow. Uh, although, although well, if you count stepbrothers, <laughs> it does get, and sisters, it does get interesting in my family. <laughs> Moving on from that. But no, the thing that I found is I, I've i gone through a number of phases associated with social media. Mm -hmm. I think it's a remarkably interesting way of growing a community, but it's a small community in parallel to doing things like putting out internet audio. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a ratio that I found that it, for every show that I put out, be it Stone 8, Model Rail Radio, even the Biota recordings, I know I can get a ratio of about between 80 to 200 to 1 
in terms of 80 to 1 to 200 to 1. In terms of ratio of unique IP addresses, whatever that means in terms of listeners, to people that are on Facebook. But the people that are contributing Mm -hmm. to the community on Facebook tend to be people that are willing to go that extra mile. Now, these are people who are in their you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, what have you. They're not the 20-somethings that you're talking about. The 20-somethings that you're talking about I do find genuinely scary. And I have recently, in fact, probably in the past year, progressively reduced the number of people I connect with on Facebook. If nothing more, because I find it too much of a kind of disturbing collective id, for want of a better terminology, that just irks me quite profoundly to interact with. That's collected id, did you say? Yes. Like Freudian id? Yes. And it's just, it's a strange thing. So we're both on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. I got my current job through LinkedIn. I quite like LinkedIn in Mm -hmm. some ways, but it, it isn't like Facebook. The thing I like through Facebook is actually I have maybe 30 or so friends in Australia that are of my age that if I still lived in Australia, I would probably be friends with them. And Mm -hmm. I get to see them having children, them interacting socially. But when I go back to Australia, actually, when I go back to Australia, a group of them will still meet me and interact with me. But there is another group that I can never interact with when I go back to Australia. So it is one of these strange Mm -hmm. dichotomies. The other thing I find about Facebook, and I've been on it... so. Around the time that I started doing Biota, I also started doing the editing and some recording on a podcast that was like a comedy podcast that was put together by a group of teenagers. And I listened to it because it originally started to have some kind of Mac uh, gaming interest. And I thought, okay, well, that's something I know a little bit about. And it was the only podcast in that space at the time. So I edited their podcast for about a year. And through that period of time, they said, well, you've got to get on Facebook. So I got on Facebook. So I was on Facebook from about 2007. So I really saw the kind of rise of it. Yeah, yeah, now, that was really early. Now yeah. I've been on it for so long, I'm I, I'm kind of jaded by it. I mean, I do check in periodically. My wife is still uh, quite active on Facebook. But I've pruned my friends, in inverted commas, down quite dramatically. I yeah. did so initially because I... It's not that I'm anti-political, it's that my politics aren't represented by political parties. Mm-hmm. So through elections, I actually find it really very... In Australia, there's compulsory voting, which means people don't have a choice. They have to vote for some entity in the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. And through that lack of choice, it forces... I mean, you know, if you, were, if you got shock therapy every day, after about a year, it would start getting normal and you'd start talking about maybe there's some positive benefits about the shock therapy. <laughs> The same is true associated with elections in Australia, and I really find it very disturbing seeing people that I knew that I have some degree of existential respect for affiliating with a political party. I find the same is true in this country. Mm. Um, So through the elections, I try to stay off Facebook, but it tends to be a relatively turbulent time. I also had a couple of friends, uh, female friends, that were in abusive relationships, Mm -hmm. and to see that play out on Facebook, in particular, one of them, their abusive boyfriend contacted me and you know started um, harassing me even though the only connection I had with this person was that I had organized a group of friends to get together when I was in Adelaide South Australia and she was one of those friends but this mm-hmm. fellow you know did communicate with me briefly 
But to see an aggressive relationship play out over two years via Facebook where it's clear this person repeatedly kind of goes back to the abuser and these kind of things was just, it just kind of disturbed me on some level, which I realized was probably more than I needed to appreciate. I think it's disturbing. I mean, I've never even, that didn't even cross my mind that, the negative or or people fighting on Facebook. It's just more the oversharing, the classic oversharing yeah. that I object to. I think the the thing that strikes me about privacy, and this comes as a migrant to the US, mm-hmm. is that the financial sector, and here I'm talking about things like your bank account, uh-huh. are so unprivate and are so shared without any regard for your privacy amongst these institutions, some of them are actually quite fly-by-night, that mm-hmm. I realised that the notion... the Privacy in a contemporary setting is really very curious. There are people that can elect to stay out of these forums, for want a better term, these areas, but I think for a lot of what I have done historically, and this even goes back to Biota, Facebook was very useful um and yeah. in terms of cultivating a community around an audience of what i was recording it provided very direct and immediate feedback about when people liked certain ideas when people wanted certain topics in that regard it extended from a mailing list but i pretty mm-hmm. well removed from my friendship group almost all the participants in biota aside from a couple of people who i've met physically because yeah. I didn't, after that community kind of, not necessarily collapsed, but just stopped working in a kind of functional form, I really didn't yeah. need to know about every every exactly. iteration of what was going on in people's lives. Yeah, you don't care, and it goes both ways too, where I feel like it's, it's very, very self-indulgent of people to post all these details about their lives, like as if they're... Obama or you know Oprah Winfrey like unless you're somebody like that nobody gives a shit you know what I mean like well, that's interesting because I think I, well, I think he, I think my perspective with regards to Obama and Oprah Winfrey probably considerably lower than yours from that perspective but you know what I mean like well, they they are they're popular you know fascinating successful whatever people they're not just me and you like this oh yeah i went to yoga today like nobody gives a shit unless you're like my husband or my best friend you don't care you know what i mean yeah. just all the minor minor details if you're not a fascinating person yeah. <laughs> who cares and that that's what i think really, well it's really interesting i guess because if you have socially if you have socially functional and this goes back to your whole original description of the deterioration of personal interactions uh-huh. but if you have social if you're functioning social groups then you are less likely to look to social networks i think i think there's some good correspondence uh-huh. there and when oh, yeah. your functioning social groups deteriorate you're probably more likely to move some of this human need into something like facebook but i don't think that it's chronological like that i think what i saw in my college students was they simultaneously were so concerned about their online presence that they had no social skills and therefore spend a lot of time alone, yeah. say that they don't have a lot of friends, say that they're depressed, that they're lonely. Well, yeah, if you put all of your effort into your online presence and no effort into your real fleshy presence, that's what's going to happen. 
So I didn't see it as people kind of like, oh, I'm having trouble making friends in the real world. I guess I'll just pick up my social media presence. It was part and parcel. It was a, a synchronized phenomenon. In terms of your return to Colorado, is Colorado like a social point where you've just returned to it through various times in your life? Well, we, you know, coincidentally, yes, we have come back here. I guess we've come back twice. So I moved out here initially in 2008, so not that long ago, right when I finished my PhD. I moved out here. And then we moved back here twice, my husband and I, but it was coincidental. So I moved to, we moved to Oregon Mm -hmm. for a fellowship I had at Oregon State University and went on the job market, nothing popped up. So we thought, let's move back to Colorado. At least we have opportunities there. We have friends there. Colorado's beautiful. So we came back here, went on the market again. We got my tenure track job in Pennsylvania, and we moved with the intention of, this is permanent, um, moved to Pennsylvania, did not love Erie, Pennsylvania. Yeah. It's a hard, it's a hard place to love. And... I went back on the job market again last year, publishing, going to conferences, doing all the stuff you're supposed to do. Nothing came through. So we thought, I guess we're going back to Colorado again. <laughs> so it's never been an intentional plan, but you know, it's, it's a beautiful place. We do have friends here at somewhere that we love. So each time it just kind of made sense to come back here. But now we're here for good. I mean, I'm, I'm off the academic job market. We're not moving. We are, we're here. Yeah. So it's somewhat social. I mean, all of our families back east, all of our, our family, both of my husband and I are in New York and Connecticut, all northeast. So we're kind of out here. We're the homesteaders. We came out west and we're staying out west. Yeah, it is interesting because I think certainly, I mean, one of the reasons that I moved to the Bay Area was because I knew people in the Bay Area. And when I was here mm-hmm. 15, well, probably 12, 13 years ago, I had not necessarily a good group of friends, but I had a consistent group of people that I saw frequently, mm-hmm. which I didn't have. I mean, my wife quilts, oh, cool. which creates an immediate community. Yes. And she has been able to create an immediate community pretty well everywhere she's gone. Mm-hmm. But coming here, she's just created an amazing vibrant community that's great Uh, professionally with me it's a very strange thing i mean let's use larry yeager as an example i was a long time fan of larry's work i still am but when we socially interacted i realized and i think it was a not just a mutual thing i think our spouses might realize this as well we were very different people i mean larry is very in favour of a particular political party. His perspective is swayed around that. And I think he's at a different stage of his life and his career. Aside from that, I mean, in terms of the kinds of things that we liked, I had a closer connection with Bruce Damer. And Bruce is an eclectic character. We considered moving to Boulder Creek where he lives because that would have been the easiest way to maintain contact with him. His whole social network... Is in the small town. Wow. Where's Boulder Creek? Is Boulder that Creek is about. Um, it's about probably I don't know twenty odd miles of wandering mountain roads away from 
Los Gatos and probably about 30 miles from where I am in San Jose. Wow. So the anticipation moving here was that I would spend a bit of time with Bruce, at least. And I've spent a couple of days with him over three and a bit years here. But well, he's been also, he's been out of the country as well, and he does other things too. But yeah, it, it was strange that no connection was made there. So yeah. of the people I know here, I have a small, I mean, there's a model rail community here. But yeah. they're not, um, you know, it's it's a different community. It's not a community that I would have any, you know, natural affinity with. And they also meet at times which don't work out particularly well with my work commitments. Mm. I think the nature of, I mean, my, my father was an academic. So I'm very well aware of yeah. certainly historically what academic communities were like. I don't know if they still exist like this. But we constantly had people staying with us. We constantly had social things associated with academia, at least while my parents were married. And then yeah. when my parents got divorced, my mother uh, became a diplomat and she had all her diplomatic friends and, you know, diplomatic parties and all that kind of stuff. So there was yeah. a child and through my yeah. early teens, I got to see adults with large real social networks. Yeah. As right. an adult, if I had stayed in Australia, I probably would have maintained that social network. I'm sure I had a lot of close friends in Australia. See the earlier discussion about Facebook. But moving to the US, the people who I met here, who I cultivated friendships with, were in some way in the technology space. And when I first came mm -hmm. here, I spent about, I don't know, 14 to 18 months with Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak and all his entourage, like their posse. And that was my social network when I was here, aside from a few other people. And when I left that, I made a very st strong, intentional decision uh, to leave that environment, that social aspect completely dropped off. In fact, it's funny moving back here um, because we still share mutual friends and there's still possibility for me to, to run into Steve or his posse and I haven't seen any of them. What I've replaced these physical networks with is, mm -hmm. as you described, to a certain extent, these electronic networks. I mean, Noble Ape as mm -hmm. an entity had an electronic network from its first creation i mean in terms of mailing lists and all this stuff right and i've worked closely with a number of people on noble Ape, many of whom i've met and a couple of whom actually live in this area there's a apple former apple engineer who now works at google uh called uh called rick he attended one of the talks that i gave at stan well the talk that i gave at stanford research in 2010 he mm. and i actually lived in the same town for probably well th two and a half years and we were friends on facebook to the point where if i saw oh. something interesting and photographed he immediately commented that you know it was in his area i once saw him actually yeah. with his family walking around doing christmas shopping in the first yeah. year that i was here but we were driving and they were walking and there was no way we could kind of meet through that but yeah, yeah. in terms of social networks here yeah. and truth be told i mean through the nature of my work but also through the nature of the things that I do, I'm probably not as outgoing as I really should be in these circumstances. Mm -hmm. But at the same point, when I lived in Australia, the social networks that existed were all informal and related yeah. to just kind of meeting up with people and getting together periodically. And they didn't have any deep underlying structure, which I think is really critical for a, a, a physical social network. 
Whereas well, even meeting Larry Yeager took about three months worth of email planning, you know. And then we met for breakfast, and then three months later he came and talked to the. So yeah, all this. I think yeah. in part it's to do with the nature of working here, yeah. and the nature of the kind of always on technology. But at the same time, yeah, I just feel as an adult, and it's something that I look back on quite misty-eyed in some regards. <laughs> Because I don't, and I yeah. mean, I know how these social networks, physical social networks, deteriorate. But I yeah. also realise that every I'm completely transplanted in all the places right. that I've lived, and to have the kind of indigenous relationships that I had in Australia would be almost impossible to cultivate here. In fact, the strongest connection I had here when I lived here in 2000 was with an artist who. Uh, who did a lot of like large mural work for people like McAfee and people who were kind of big tech people. And mm. I've kept in contact with him, but he doesn't live here anymore. And he and I would get together, as you say, informally, just, you know, occasionally for like a social drink, a meal, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just happened in a kind of haphazard way. Yeah, it's a curious yeah. thing because I think yeah. my wife has all these connections. I mean, it just happens very naturally for her through yeah. the quilting community. But there's yeah. never really been a community that I've been... I mean, the artificial life community, unfortunately, has not been that. Model rail is interesting, but when it comes down to it, my life path. is not model rail, on, you know, yeah. in terms of the stuff that I talk and think about, so... Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. I'm thinking, um, what quilting is for your wife, yoga is for me. Mm-hmm. I can... And I have. I met a lot of people through yoga here in Boulder County because I've, I've taught yoga at three different places and I've practiced at three different places. And then when we lived in Oregon, I found a studio that I loved and I met people that way. And then even in Pennsylvania, I mean, it was a saving grace because it was such an awful place to live. But my local YMCA had this little holistic center where they did yoga and massage and Reiki and all sorts of stuff. And I just totally inserted myself in that community. I said, I'm a yoga teacher from Boulder County. I'd love to teach here. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm friends with this person and this person. So it is sort of a, like, like quilting is for your wife. It's sort of like an instant community because you have that affinity with those people wherever you go in the world. And it's just this nice natural connection. But I think what's interesting is, you know, you were talking about, oh, maybe I'm not as friendly as I should be. I think that's another thing that social media has done to us is the expectations where 20 years ago, if you were introverted and you were shy and reserved, it was okay if you had two friends. You know what I mean? Because some people had two friends yeah. and they were, those were just their buddies. Yeah. And now social media, I think, has given us this expectation, especially Facebook. I mean, I used to give a friend of mine here a hard time, but I'd get these automated invitation from this Facebook account saying, this person wants you to be friend number 841. And he'd always say, Liz, that's not me. That's just the system, you know. And I said, how ridiculous. Like, really, you have 800 friends? I think it's given us this false expectation that we have to have, like, this huge network of people who are interested in what we're doing and we're connected to them and they're connected to us. And it's really somewhat artificial. Because, you know, depending on your situation and your personality, some people have a lot of friends and some people are okay with one best friend. You know what I mean? And I wonder if social media has kind of warped 
those expectations. So I went through a process where I had about 1,200 Facebook friends. <laughs> so you're one of those people no, 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 that no, I'm no, talking no. about. Let me, let me, I've, I've been cleansed okay. of this. So let me, let me, let me <laughs> testify here. So what I found through that, and most of that came through Model Rail. I mean, most of that was Model Rail Radio where people just befriended me because they discovered the podcast and wanted to tell me about their lives. Mm-hmm. I told people uh, about probably six to nine months ago that I was actually going to expunge my friends list considerably. And I said to them, it's nothing personal. <laughs> they all got nervous. <laughs> it's nothing personal. I'm just going to do this because I can't. This is sensorily overwhelming for me and I can't interact with this thing anymore. Exactly. And also I get the impression, and I found this to be the case, that Facebook actually removes information that you're interested in and just gives you this nonsense, which is what Facebook is interested in. There's actually like a meta algorithm which works against it. So I cut it down to about 600 and then I went to 400 and now I'm down to less than 300 and I'm working probably my way to 200. And through that process, I realized firstly, Facebook wants you to have as many friends as possible. Facebook actually likes this vast social network phenomena. As soon as you start cutting away at that, um, firstly, as you note, there's this strange social stigma associated with being unfriended and all this other kinds of oh, stuff. Oh, sure. But the right. point that I made back to people was, firstly, they, m- most people consume the majority of my content through audio that I put out, and they're mm-hmm. continuing to do that. And there are these little pockets on Facebook still, like for folks who are interested in model railroading, where I will be in the model rail radio, although I'm not there every single minute of every single day, that's my community. If you want to interact with me, you can interact with me there. If you're interested in Biota, you can interact with me there. If you're interested in Stone Ape, you can interact with me there. You don't yeah. need this immediacy of knowing me as an entity. Right. Politically, through Model Rail Radio, there are a couple of people who, not necessarily that I offended, but who tried to then make very uh, pointed comments associated with my family. Um, And it was very curious in that interaction because I realized that the interaction that you have through Facebook gives uh, an immediacy where people believe that they know you in a way that they really don't know you. Mm -hmm. And through that interaction, I started to realize that I, I had to reduce my friends probably down to maybe and maybe 60 to 100 people and it was going to take me a certain period of time but i had to do this just for my own kind of psychological well-being um and the main questions through that it was very easy to get rid of a majority of the model rail folk because i really didn't have any connection with them i just knew them through their thousands of photos of trains but there was an element also of just a realization that i had i mean as you well know because i wrote chapters for books that you were the editor in i used to devote a certain amount of time to academic writing i don't do that anymore because i having spent time at the artificial life conference and also having seen the immense productivity that my academic writing did in terms of you know informing people about my work um i realized that this was a bit of a dead end but i still like to write and i realized that actually my writing time had been severely impacted by facebook but also my free time to read and do other things that I enjoyed, spend time with my wife, although really Facebook had never impacted that. We kind of 
put stuff down and, you know, talk and interact when we need to. Um, yeah. But, you know, all these kind of things was just about a quality of life issue. I mean, the quality of life yeah. improved dramatically. And I did get to the point yeah. where could I go cold turkey? And I know a number of people that have left Facebook. Yeah. But unfortunately, the interactions that I have, maintaining these communities still require a certain degree of interaction, although I can imagine a time where this no longer is necessary. Yeah. Well, it depends on the precedent that you set because, you know, I mean, in person, I will call myself a social person. And also, as you know, professionally, I mean, every time I've edited one of these books, it's mm -hmm. coordinating, you know, 20 authors and yeah. the other two editors and the publisher and the, the copy editors. You're coordinating like dozens of people on different continents. So you do have to be out there and you have to have some sort of presence, but it, it depends on the precedent that you set because I never started with Facebook and had 500 friends to keep track of yes. <laughs> and to satisfy with, you know, momentary updates or whatever happens on Facebook. So I feel like, I guess I never had that huge drag and LinkedIn is so different. I had no objection so far to yeah. LinkedIn where I can pop on it once a day and see, oh, cool, my new boss at the, the business where I just got hired is now a connection. Cool. So he's seen my profile and knows a little bit more about me. Awesome. That took 30 seconds. You yeah. know what I mean? It's not, it's not a time suck at all. So I feel like it's a different model. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad when I hear people leaving Facebook and it, it is getting bad press, so much bad stuff has come of it. But it's just funny that it's, like, taken so much time for people to realize, yeah, what, what is this addiction all about? And how did this come about? And what does it mean that I have a thousand friends? <laughs> it's just such a weird phenomenon, I think, that we can maybe look back on in 10 years and think, wasn't that interesting that everybody was so addicted to that one website? <laughs> I don't know. I hope it's like that. I hope it's kind of a, a passing Phase, but. Yeah, I think you need to, I mean, certainly oh. my experience required a degree of negative experiences. I've also yeah. known people that have died and their wives have posted updates associated with their death and these kind of things. Oh, I mean, so God. I've had these strange kind of human emotional connections where, yeah. you know, I found out and there are all these kind of curious things. Um, yeah. My wife's grandmother was killed by a train nice. and that within an in, within wow. half an hour of it happening there was a photograph of it online oh so i realized very quickly this was recently um, 2011 oh my goodness so i realized that this thing called the internet not just facebook but the immediacy of it and then people immediately commenting that this elderly woman shouldn't have been driving like, you know, no one knew anything about my wife's grandmother or anything about this, but the public right. had a means to vent right. at this event. Yes. Um, and so I realized that the immediacy of the internet, not just Facebook, creates these things that humans haven't historically had to deal with. I think it requires, for some of us at least, a set of interactions which make us wonder this is not what it's supposed to be about you know and for others such as yourself not even engaging in the social media you know experiment so yeah i still yeah. see some benefit i still emotionally 
think it's fascinating to see people who I never would have had any interaction with after high school who are who do connect with me on some shared experience level seeing yeah. their children them you know seeing various aspects of my life and I think there are these things which I still find redeeming through the interface but yeah. this is not the experience that my young cousin is having she basically uh, dropped out of university in order to become an actress through as you say this cult of ego which yeah. is something which is so uh artificial but also clearly constructed to create some kind of psychological slavery like there's something where yeah. the thing i always liked about computers was the fact that i could control them i could create technology that ran on computers and i was in no way a servant of them you know right. i could actually direct what was created through them and right. that experience was very empowering the thing that concerns me about what you described particularly for the you know for the the kind of social media generation is that yeah. they're not being empowered through it it's similar to my experience with kind of early programming and technology Exactly. Yeah. It's like the opposite. It's like yeah. the opposite. They're being completely enslaved by it and voluntarily too. I mean that that's what is so worrisome that it's um really, really completely taking over. So much so that, you know, you, you can ask your your class of students, which I did last year, to just sit quietly and breathe for five minutes and then we took a walk on campus and I had them put their phones away and the, the things that they talked about and wrote like I, I looked up at the sky I haven't looked at the sky in so long and I noticed the guy you know working on the lawn and I, I noticed that I never look around when I'm walking between classes it's for them, it was so profound to walk from point A to point B on campus, not staring at their phone. And for me, it was profound that that was profound for them because they are so used to looking at their phones, whatever's going on there, that they're not even in, they're, they're not even mentally, psychologically in the world that they're moving through. It's... I, it's, I, I don't even have the words to explain how bizarre a situation is is coming or, or is, is happening. I mean, I, I saw it happening that yeah. I don't even know how to put it into words, but I, I, I think that's what it is. That exactly the beginning of, you know, the real computer boom, say the 1980s, where people were like, well... Computers can do anything, but that was because the programmers were learning how to do all this interesting, exciting, mind-blowing stuff with computers, right? It was very much, it was human-powered and human-centered. Now it's completely the opposite. It's like, I can't help looking at Facebook 20 times a day because I'm addicted to it. It's really... A, a different model, you know? So something that's always struck me as curious, and I have a few academic friends, but, I mean, you've illustrated this perfectly, and as a former philosophy student, mm -hmm. I get the sense, I mean, the, the way I took philosophy was associated with, like, deep immersion in literature. Like, mm -hmm. that was the only way to really 
break through or with a number of philosophers was just to immerse yourself and then consider that what they were trying to do did have deeper meaning. You had to explore it through your own thought. How do you even teach? I mean, obviously you voted with your feet and your body. So obviously this is a, uh, uh, past tense question, but how did you teach philosophy in this environment? What I did was pretty much give up on trying to teach the content and I just tried to get my students to think, period. <laughs> and even that is a real, real challenge. For most of them, you can't do it. They won't do it. You, you just can't succeed. And for the one or two students in each class who do make a connection, you know, they're, they're rusty neurons, they're like, you know, they're like trying to make a connection, they will say, oh my God, this class was so profound, you know, it just blew my mind, you know, I just, I thought about stuff I never thought about before, and you're like, yeah, you know, that's, that's what education's all about, that's what thinking and reading and writing and understanding is all about, but it's, it is, um, you know, you're not trying to teach something practical like business. You know, this is how you'll make a lot of money when you graduate from college. Maybe business professors have more success. Maybe they have, you know, a more friendly ear. But philosophy is philosophy. And you're trying to teach, you know, a whole generation of students who are addicted to social media and don't have the attention span and don't just aren't interested, and it's very, very, very difficult. I mean, that, that's why I jumped off that track, to be honest, because I saw it's not going to get any easier for college professors. It's going to get more difficult. And yeah. It wasn't rewarding at all, at all, at all. But you, you just, you really, it's not about dumbing down the content. It's about, you know, who cares what Descartes first book was called. You you do need to know if you're going to get a master's degree in philosophy or, or even if you're going to be a philosophy major, but for the vast majority of students who are just taking introduction to philosophy, who, who cares about, you know, Descartes was born in 1596 and he died in 1650, whatever. They don't need to know that, but if you can just say something that Descartes wrote about that's really profound and you kind of see the light bulb go off and you've actually made them think, then they have those thinking skills to utilize in other contexts. And that's all I was trying to do. But that's my own philosophy of teaching. You know, a lot of professors think that the content is really important. No, they need to know that Descartes lived before Kant. And it's like, "Mm, I don't know about that. I think what they need to know is that, that they can think, that they have the power of reason, that they can think abstractly and that's exciting and they can apply it to other things. But even that, which you might think sounds really, really basic, I'm talking about getting through to like 1% of the student body today. Yeah, it's astonishing. It's, I mean, it's astonishing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Particularly because, I mean, I did a physics degree and a philosophy degree, and the philosophy, the physics degree impacted me, but it had a temporality. I mean, the, the, the use that I've had for it has been primarily in noble ape and creating physics environments, simulated physics mm-hmm. environments. But the philosophy was really profound because it impacted, as, as you say, mm-hmm. the way that I approach problems, but also, you know, the way in which I kind of understand 
as time in certain circumstances, but also a changing of ideas. I think prior to going to university, I had already thought about a number of the ideas that we explored in university. And I think that's another thing that this generation has just missed. Yeah. There seems to be a disconnection between like arriving at university. I mean, maybe the business majors and the law majors and all these folks have this. But with a sense of intellectual curiosity, when I lived in the UK, uh, my co-workers would talk about the Dark Ages and how people just didn't think in the Dark Ages. They're just like, oh, I'm filthy. (laughs) Filthy. You know, but through this period of time, children made toys which were just as intricate as children made in Roman times and just as intricate as children made. You know, the whole nature that we're basically biologically the same monkeys throughout. Right, right. Makes me wonder that something really profound has gone on here that needs a deeper degree of understanding. I'm I'm fascinated by analysis. I'm fascinated by social analysis. But I think it gives an ability in these circumstances not to repeat, violently repeat in many cases, the past. Well, yeah. What has occurred now is almost that a generation has been created that is so completely removed from this mode of analysis. In, in parallel to this, yeah. a thing that I follow is the historical documentation of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And what interests me with the Vietnam conflict is that if there was any, if it was taught in any way, mm-hmm. the the conflicts that we are in currently in Afghanistan and Iraq are so similar in many ways to the Vietnam conflict. But here's the here's the yeah. even more curious thing. Through what I've done, I've had the opportunity to know a prisoner of war of Vietnam, of the conflict. He's an academic as well, or he's an academic. And he sure. used to teach his experiences. Wow. And he had been contacted recently by an intelligence agency saying that he couldn't talk about this anymore, that this was still oh, protected information. Yeah. I remember um, you saying this on Stone Age. What happens through this is the history of Vietnam as it's now taught, it was actually a US victory. That basically right. what happened happened after the fact, and there was this delta of time. And I think the the ability to actually go back and find primary sources, you can find books still which have the original history of the vietnam conflict but if people were just to watch television or see films or interact or films of a particular period not obviously historical obviously not anything by all of us time but you know modern films you would not get a sense of these the conflict in any meaningful way and would be perpetuated in this notion of the u.s always victorious always you know, moving forward, always mm. invading and colonizing and, and bringing freedom yeah. and democracy to, you know, the, the masses that were uh, invaded. Yeah. With this generation, without critical skills, with an inability to interact with books and uh, these kind of histories, yeah. this is where this thing yeah. perpetuates. Yeah, there is, a, and I, I, don't, I won't remember the names because this was literature that I was looking into about a year ago. Um, there was a book that came out, and I can find out what it is eventually, um, written by two men. They might be sociologists or psychologists, and they were saying that the millennial generation, so people, you know, before and after, uh, you know, I don't know where they put it, but say people like 20 to 25 years old, are going to be and are the most socially engaged, socially active 
you know, hardcore activist, this and that. And I read this in uh, like a review of the book, and I thought, are they kidding me? Like, wait, what? This has got to be a joke because you don't see any evidence of that. And my my view is very, very narrow. I've only taught it seven colleges and universities <laughs> in the United States. No, but I'm saying that is narrow. I haven't taught all over the world. I haven't yeah. taught, you know, all different, you know, cultures and whatnot. But American college kids, I thought, are these guys kidding me? Um, this is the most socially engaged, most likely to vote, most likely to volunteer in their communities. I was like, what is going on? And then, um, a woman who, she's in California, I want to say San Jose State University, again, I'll get her name, psychologist, really had some, you know, biting, critical replies. Like, what are you guys talking about? If you look at, you know, the generation during the Vietnam War where college students were actually, you know, skipping class to go to protests and they were voting and they were very socially engaged and very concerned about where the country's headed and all this stuff. You don't see any evidence of this. And she did all these interesting polls looking at these students have the most um, inflated self-images that they're going to graduate with honors and they're going to make six figures, you know, five years after graduation and they're going to be top of their field, no matter what their field is, no matter, you know, their training, nothing. They're going to be um, so successful, yada, yada, yada. And meanwhile, um, you look at these students and you look at what they're actually doing and, and their actual grade and their actual performance, and it's not at all on track to meet those goals. So what you have is it's actually a double whammy. Not only do you have this disengaged, disenchanted, kind of checked out younger population, but they also have these really, really ridiculous expectations of themselves. And so that's what you see in the classroom. You see students who absolutely are checked out and don't want to do any work, and yet they're expecting aids. And it's really frightening. And it's nothing like when I was in college, which is not a million years ago, It has. it's really the whole world of American college education is, is has turned upside down. And I've written a couple of things about it because I just, I can't believe what's happening and I can't believe how quickly it's happening. It's, it's unbelievable. I'm telling you. It's crazy. The thing that chills me interacting with my younger cousins is that they cannot be wrong. Yeah. So the nature of learning, of making mistakes, yeah. acknowledging them and developing from that. Yeah. I mean, I was a pretty hot-headed kid. I left Australia came over here, you know, did what I needed to do, but hit a number of, I mean, even while I was in Australia, hit a number of obstacles that required me to dramatically change my interaction at any given point and to learn from those experiences. Otherwise, I wouldn't have, you know, made any progress. But in my professional life, the ability to be wrong is probably the largest and most important part of my professional life. I mean, it's, it's defined my ability to have a degree of humility and get on and get things done. I mean, irrespective Mm -hmm. of the craziness, I can still 
you know, there's, there's still tolerance in there, but it has to acknowledge, I have to acknowledge the mistakes when they're made and fix them accordingly. It strikes me right. as very scary. I mean, I have always had, mainly through reading science fiction at far too young an age, a perspective that I, you know, that my lifetime would experience many potential apocalyptic moments, be it, you know, rampant global warming, riots, these kind of things. But this generation and the coldness, I mean, the conversations I've had with my young cousins seem to indicate that they have no notion of existential respect. Like, for Mm -hmm. example, the recent movie Her, which came out, and I, I, yeah, which is really a movie for their generation. But the the thing that struck me through that was that I actually knew a guy who consulted on the movie. He's local here. He's had some interaction with me and Bob Mottram through Noble Ape. I wouldn't necessarily consider him a peer, but he's someone who I've interacted with. And when Mm. the film came out and he was doing publicity for the film, I reflected poorly on him. But when this thing came out and my cousin saw it, I thought we were actually having a discussion associated with this film where they might actually have some interest in, you know, some of the things that I had an interest in. No, that was not the interaction that was being had. Um, and what was the interaction? And, yeah, it was, um, it actually resulted in one of my young cousins unfriending me on Facebook. She was so violently opposed to this notion that I wasn't agreeing with her, which struck me as very strange at the time. Well, what was the disagreement about that? Because dis- I've seen the film, so... So, I, there are a number of, I mean, the, it's a great movie to teach a young philosophy class about... <laughs> Things yeah. like embodiment, for example, you yeah. know, this notion that um, to give a, a created entity, uh, but we didn't even get to that level. It wasn't even to that level. I just said, you know, I didn't think a lot of it, and I was about to say why, and then immediately because I had was going to approach them with some thesis based on some experience that I had actually developing simulated agents. Their only response was to start, like, almost, like, outlandishly kind of cussing at me and then, unfriend- in the case of this one cousin, unfriending me before we'd even had a basic discussion associated with the film. The wow. whole notion that I wasn't agreeing with her caused yeah. enough ire for her to completely cease the interaction. Which yeah. struck yeah. me as very curious because I mean I I have I mean because of where I was born I have I have uncles and aunts and family and also extended kind of intellectual folks who were connected with my parents who I would interact with and and not necessarily violently disagree but certainly disagree with on yeah. a pretty regular basis and that whole intellectual sparring was so yeah. important basically in forming my own identity but also enabling me to construct from a relatively young age philosophically you know, based arguments that could could have disagreements and actually work through these things. And the whole nature of the potential of, oh, no, I mean, I can't even frame it, but it was almost like the potential for conflict here and disagreement. And immediately, and the other cousin who didn't unfriend me sent me these series of correspondences where she was chastising me and talking down to me. This is someone who's 18 years my junior. Wow. Very, very strange. And I think what I've wow. seen from what you know, what my academic friends describe, who haven't yet liberated themselves, as you have so wisely done, <laughs> is that, um, yeah, I mean, in just personal interactions, to being able to talk about a film 
I mean, this isn't like, you know, analysing Locke or Kant or Hume. I mean, I right. can't imagine having a discussion associated with Kant with this generation. Exactly. I mean, I have, I have particularly dour German and Scottish academics that taught me that were in no way... I mean, they motivated me to continue to rebel against them through creating noble ape. Yeah. And they weren't in any way ideal intellectual mentors. Yeah. But um, they would certainly state their opinion in a way where you had to engage with them in order to, you know, resolve discourse. Yeah. yeah. It's a and curious thing. It's very curious. That is being lost. And I don't know how to sync it up with the social media addiction. I'm sure that it is somehow connected, but there is... Where I saw that happening last year was each class, each introduction to philosophy class I taught, we had two debates, I think, which was um, more or less an opportunity for the students who never talk in class. They're given they're given a um, a part to play. They're given a role. You know, you are going to ask the one question. The um, you know, I never taught debate. I forget what it's called, but. You know, you're either going to make a point, or you're going to make a counterpoint, or the judges are going to ask you a question. You're going to have to answer. So, which part do you want to play? And you're you're basically spoon feeding them participation points, right? So, I staged a couple of debates, and one of which was I let them choose the topic. So, all the regular topics come up: you know, abortion, euthanasia, blah blah blah. This one class that had a little more personality hit upon the legalization of marijuana. And I thought, great, that's a great topic. But, you know, we, we kind of narrowed it down. It was it was more nuanced than that. It was just medical or recreational or, you know, we nuanced it. So it was a topic that they chose, is my point. And the day of the debate, I felt like I was fucking pulling teeth. I was like... All right, you guys, it's your turn. State your point. Okay, now it's your turn. You guys, state your mm. point. And I really had to hand, hold their hand every step of the way. And it was, it was tedious, and it was like pulling teeth. Well, after the debate, students came up to me and said, wow, that was so intense. <laughs> that, was, that was so intense. Wow, that really got out of control. And I'm thinking, what? It was like we had two completely different experiences. They could barely hold on to how controversial and intense it was. And I was thinking, are you kidding me? I was like, so there's something being lost there, right? And maybe it's, maybe it's idealistic. I just think that at some point in college education, I don't know if it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, students would really genuinely in a topic that they chose and it's for part of their grade that's a lot of motivation so you know get into it and throw yourself out there and and make your voice heard and all these things and they have such a difficult time and i think some of that's related to social media where it's easy to post your opinion online right and then step away from your phone and let people react however they react. It's not as risky as in real time, face to face, I'm gonna say something and people might give me a dirty look. People might hate what I'm saying, but I'm gonna say it because I believe it. That's really, really almost too scary for kids today. They almost can't 
deal with the conflict or the controversy. And I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't worked out that theory, but I feel like it must have something to do with, you know, it's safer to post your opinions online than it is to state them in person, something like that. Because it, it just was really remarkable for me. I would have thought students would have said, oh, that was so boring. That totally fell flat. Yeah. And instead, it was like the most exciting thing they had done all month, you know? Yeah. I don't <laughs> it think... It was wild. I mean, I understand the your kind of gestalt analysis of social media in this context. I think there's a, there are broader... Of which social media is a large part, don't get me wrong. Maybe. But I think there are broader societal themes that relate to... I don't like using the term discipline, but responsibility. And there are yep. a variety of things that have changed generationally. Yes. And it's very curious, actually, because certainly... I felt very heavily societally disciplined as a child. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the ultimate movement for that for me was to leave Australia mm -hmm. uh, because I felt that I couldn't do what I needed to do in Australia. I still don't feel that I could do what I do in Australia. Mm -hmm. And I think while that was hostile and a lot of that was nasty and a lot of it was associated with you know, things that I don't agree with, that kind of adversity that I was part of shaped who I was and shaped where I needed to go and what I needed to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I, I, think, I think we've generated a number of topics here, Liz. I want to save some for the future. I want to get the listeners yeah. engaged and interested. So I yeah. think this has probably been, it's probably been a very good pilot. I'll need to listen back to it. I'll need to get other contribution but we'll certainly need yeah. to do this again the plan is to do this every yeah. other week we're both we're both relatively oh, that's good. busy and engaged so let's plan on doing this in uh, two weeks time i have a wave of family members um some of whom i haven't seen i mean my father oh. i haven't seen for five years coming in the next week oh so wow that, I will, and my father is still a practicing academic so i will talk to him although he doesn't, he? he doesn't um he doesn't he's currently in hong kong he's been there for the past few years so he may not although he may engage in the same kind of student or with the same kind of students that you have described i would love to know yes well I would, which is what's his get... discipline by the way which <laughs> uh, what's sociology. His... sociology oh cool all so, right he's he's got to have some insight then he probably does Never short of an opinion, my father. So um, in two weeks' time, a potential of a wide variety of additional topics, but I think we've framed it very well in the pilot. Thank you very much for the chance to chat, Liz. I'm looking forward to doing it again in two weeks' time.